So, I want to just ask the question, is consciousness a chemical reaction or something else? Now, you might have a knee-jerk response to that question, but just think about it a little bit. If I had to ask you to describe the color green to somebody who is blind, how would you describe that color? What kind of vocabulary would you use to describe that color to a person? You usually reference the color green to something you see. Bottle green, olive green, army green, any number of varieties of colors that you see. I mean, you look at something and you point at something and you say that that is green. And you automatically know and understand what green is. To describe the color green to somebody who's never seen the color green or red or any color, how would you even begin to go about doing something like that? One of the big arguments that people have around the, the artificial intelligence kinds of stuff is, is it possible to create a consciousness? Is that where our intelligence and where our decision-making skills come from, just from the ability to be conscious and is that the thing that would be required to create an artificial intelligence is to have something conscious to create a consciousness. Now I think along these things in the lines of everybody knows what fasting is. It's a pretty big thing now. A lot of people talk about it and the benefits of fasting, how good it is for your health, how good it is for your mental cognition those kind of things. It's a difficult thing to do. But what is the difference between fasting and starving yourself? Because the two are very closely linked to each other. It's not a huge stretch of the imagination to go from one to the other. But why is the one positive and associated with positivity and helping us with our mental capacity and the other one isn't? Why is that information important? What is it about that that is useful to me, that is something that I can apply? So, so again, we're talking about consciousness and whether consciousness is just some kind of chemical reaction or not. I know they've done experiments where they've weighed the human body before and after somebody has died and there's a definite change in weight of small amounts, but there's a definite change. Now, Evolutionists talk about the Big Bang, that our observable universe was created 13.8 billion years ago. This is the idea that they put forward. Somewhere in space, there was a huge explosion. And all of this exploded into reality. They've come up with these ideas because they've been able to measure what is happening in our universe. Apparently our universe is expanding. Plus a whole lot of other measurements that they take. I'm not a scientist, but they are able to prove with 90% accuracy that this happened mathematically. And the reasoning is, is if something is 90% provable, well, then it must be true. 
on the other side of the coin, which is also something that is interesting, if you look at the creationists, the creationists believe that the earth was made 5,000 years ago. The earth was made 5,000 years ago. All the dinosaur bones and the fossils are all put there to test our faith. There's no evolution. So, who's to say that this event actually happened? Are we talking about a big bang? Are we talking about a big event? What is going to happen? Is it going to expand and then is it going to contract? Is this something that really happened? How many realities are we looking at here? Because we can't see our consciousness, but we are all conscious. And part of the discussion here is that if you mix certain chemicals together like they are in our brain is it possible that consciousness will just happen so really the reason i'm talking about this is not because I, i'm speaking from some position of authority because there isn't any proof that consciousness is a chemical reaction or anything else they cannot figure out where consciousness comes from. Nobody knows. But it's that, that fine line between, I'll use the example again of fasting and of starving yourself. Because not eating definitely does give a person levels of control. That's why people become anorexic, because they feel completely in control of their life. So why is it that a person has to resort to not eating at all to achieve those levels? And doing something like intermittent fasting, doing some research into that and seeing what it's about and trying it and seeing if you are able to do it and, and able to maintain it because the, the drive to eat is strong. So there's a very fine line and it's very easy to flop into something that is not constructive, something that is not helpful, something that can take away. So if we look at, at training, just going to the gym, what we do is put our systems under stress. And we grow through that experience. So stress is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm sure everybody understands that you go to the gym what you're doing is you're breaking down your muscle fibers when you, when you lift weights and you rest and they rebuild and there's growth through that process. And if you stop going to the gym, shrinkage happens. The same with fasting is you put your system under stress. There's a thing that I've been doing since last year and that is cold water exposures. So twice a week I jump into ice cold bath of water it's about one degree, between zero and one degree. So it's not frozen, but it does freeze over the top. And I spend 10 minutes in the ice cold water. Now, I should have actually thought of the idea, but if someone falls into a frozen lake, they get hypothermia immediately and die from that experience. I jump into zero degree water I sit in zero degree water for 10 minutes 
I get out of the zero degree water, I put on my jeans, a polo jacket, a fleece jacket, and just carry on with my day, maybe sit in the sun a little bit. So I don't go into a state of hypothermia. I don't die. Now the first time that I did it, I jumped into an ice bath of 10 degrees water. Our tap water normally in summer is about 17 to 19 degrees. That's normally what you will find your swimming pool water at in summer, 17 to 19 degrees. And at the Wanderers in Joburg at the Planet Fitness, they've got a, a splash pool there next to the sauna where you can go in the sauna and then jump in the ice water and then back into the sauna, however you want to do it. I didn't do the sauna, I just jumped into the splash pool, 10 degrees. And it was my first time doing it. I spent 15 minutes in 10 degree water. And there's a thing called an after drop because what happens is Cold is, cold is cold. Cold doesn't play around. People get frostbite. Cold can be quite a thing. My core temperature went down and I just couldn't get warm. Like I said, it was my first time doing this experiment. And I have a, a goose down jacket. I had my goose down jacket on, my tracksuit, a beanie, and I was under my duvet. And I just couldn't get warm. I was freezing and I actually thought that I might go into some kind of shock and then something would happen to me. So I jumped in the hot shower and that raised up my body temperature and I kind of balanced out and then I went on to Dr. Google to find out exactly what the experience was and it's called the after drop because that's what happens is your core temperature goes down. So now that I'm aware of it, I've become used to it. There's a, a process called homesis. And homesis is, as a silly example, in days gone past, the rulers would take small doses of poison to protect themselves from being poisoned because your body builds up a resistance and a tolerance. Your body always wants to find a balance always wants to come to a place of homeostasis. So, having done this once before and understanding the process, now I hardly feel it doesn't bother me that much anymore. This winter has been the best winter that I've ever had in my life. You jumped in a cold shower, the tap water is between 7 and 9 degrees, it's cold and it's winter. I do that every second day. I don't feel the cold anymore. The cold doesn't bother me anymore. I've built up a higher tolerance to cold. It also helps me with my mental focus and with my mental clarity, which I really like. So, stress is not a bad thing, but people are very afraid of stress. If you have too much stress, you're going to have a heart attack. But it's that very, very same line between starving yourself and fasting. How do you stay on the right side of stress? And what does that have to do with your consciousness and where you place your consciousness or where your consciousness comes from? Again, just referencing back to what I'm talking about, how do you describe a color to somebody who's never seen a color before? 
in a very roundabout way, using a lot of stories in the way that I'm talking about this stuff. So, negative stress is an inability to deal with or adapt to. I don't like to deal with. It's an inability to adapt to your environment. It's too difficult. It's too hard. I can't do this. The inability to survive under the circumstances that we are faced with. That's negative stress. Now, there's the, the very, very old story of the Knights of the Round Table, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Because I've looked at this stuff for a good while, you start looking at the history of story and storytelling and how important storytelling is as part of our society. You know, it's a natural part of our life. The one story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table was the quest for the Holy Grail, the cup of eternal life, which was apparently the cup that was used at the Last Supper or the one that was used to catch the blood when Jesus was crucified and he was stabbed with a sword. I can't remember the exact story. Apparently, whoever drinks from the cup will have eternal life. Uh, is it just a fairy tale? Or are they trying to say something to us? Is there more to the story than appears? One thing, though, about that story that they do talk about is the knights go off on this quest and each knight has to decide where his journey starts, where his quest starts. And he goes into the forest at that place in the forest that is the darkest to him. So that for me is quite interesting because it's usually in the place that we don't want to look and the place that we don't want to go that is where we need to start our journey, where our answers might be. So Reverend Jim Jones started a church that turned into a cult following. I think it was in California. And he, he had a very good operation because he reached a lot of like really disadvantaged communities and he gathered a lot of people around him. And he had this ideal that he wanted to create a, a utopian society for his followers where everything was equal for everybody. And there were no hierarchies. All right, he would be the, the, the head man, but there would be no hierarchies and everything would be shared freely amongst everybody else. And they bought this compound in Guatemala. There were already questions being asked about what he was doing in California because unfortunately he started using a lot of boba chips and he was drinking and he went a little bit off the deep end which sometimes happens with these guys is they start changing the rules to suit themselves so it also became everybody's wife was his wife and all the children were his children and you know how the whole cult story goes share and share alike just some get more of the share than everybody else and they bought this compound in Guatemala and the whole fellowship flew to the jungle in South America and he stayed behind and 
the compound actually worked really well because they built everything themselves. They had a school. The children were getting educated. Everybody was looking after everybody else. It was actually quite a positive socialist, which the two don't seem to work very nicely together, community that they had created until he arrived. And he would have these long rants and they would have these sermons and he convinced everybody to commit suicide. And they would have rehearsals where they would practice. They had, I think, three or four rehearsals before they actually put arsenic in the Kool-Aid. Imagine everybody was going off to the promised land. God only knew what was going through his mind, but he would have loudspeakers around the compound and he would just ramble on with these like, crazy things. And everybody died. Everybody died. Obviously, why the investigation started is because people became isolated from their families, etc., etc., etc. And there again, something with good ideals that just somehow seems to flop over into something that caused hundreds of people to commit suicide. They all followed him and, and did what he asked and, and everybody died. He obviously wanted to die and everybody died with him. It's again that very, very fine line between how do you navigate between these things. One example that I always use is if we do talk about the, the communist ideals and the socialist ideals where everything is equal and everything gets shared, it would seem that the only way to enforce that is that there need to be goons and thugs who implement the rules. Because if you don't follow the rules, then you can't participate in our society. And then somebody has to be in charge of all of the thugs and all of the goons. So even in a society, in a utopian society where everything must be equal, there seems to be these hierarchies that develop that some are more equal than others. And then you try and get those guys out of power to stop killing everybody. Uh, we've all heard how many tens of millions of people were killed in Russia, what Adolf Hitler tried to do. So you have a system of rules and then you have this utopian ideal of fairness and equality. Now, I think, I think we can all accept that life isn't fair. That's just one of those things that that's just how, how life is. Something that I've mentioned before and I think it's worth speaking about again is the Prato distribution. Prato distribution is 80-20 law. That's why 20% of the people have as much money as the other 80%. I read something very interesting on biznews.co.za, one of the local websites. They say if you earn 44,000 Rand per month after deductions, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in South Africa. It's quite interesting. I didn't know that. 
80% of all the classical music played on the classical radio stations have been composed by 20% of the composers. 20% of the trees in the forest get 80% of all of the light and the nutrition. Peas that grow in pea pods. 20% uh, of the peas, pea pods produce 80% of the peas, if I'm not mistaken. It's some ridiculous equation like that. I can't remember it exactly. You look in any collective or any community, a large company, 20% of the employees will do as much work as the other 80%. It's just the, the way that it works. 20% of the people are going to make as much money as the other 80% of the population. Now these are not systems and structures that have been implemented because of capitalism or because of socialism or because of anything. That's just the way that it is, whether it's fair or whether it isn't fair. So fair doesn't really come into it. So how do we navigate our way through all the rules and all the systems and all the structures and still be able to gain the benefits of those systems without becoming fascist about it. And that's what the whole purpose of the exercise is. So there's a thing called Taoism. What Taoism says is that it's up to each person to define their own way. Now that's quite a, quite a broad statement because it's quite easy for me to justify in my mind why I have to do the things that I do. I can take any message and turn it around to suit myself. That's a thing called confirmation bias and confirmation dissonances. But if it's up to each of us to define the, the path for ourselves, what then is the path that you are choosing? If, if life is like a river, right? it's heading in a direction. If you're going to be swimming upstream, you're not going to be getting anywhere and all you're going to do is you're going to be exhausting yourself. Is it possible to swim to the bank and say that you don't want to play this game anymore? Not necessarily because life is just going to pass you by. So how do you survive in an environment like that? How do you survive in the flow of life? If, like the question that I, that I asked in the beginning, if I was to ask you to describe or tell me what God is, I think that any person trying to do that would be overstepping or, re or overreaching. Because how is it possible for you to describe or define something that is even difficult for us to comprehend? versus just accepting.
Why does it have to have definitive parameters and have to be a specific way? Are those the parameters that we think and that this is how it should be? And then find reasons to justify and prove why it is? Or is there more to that question? And is it important? Uh, I guess part of this message, and this is really what I want to end with, is is it possible to take action without taking any action? And is there any sense to that? Is it possible to take action without taking any action? Is it possible to believe in a power greater than ourselves without actually having to define what that power is? <laughs>